Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 246 tonight. Uh, we are joined by a special guest, uh, Dr. Michael Masters. Uh, we've had him on a few times. If you have not uh, listened to those episodes, I recommend going back and listening to him. Uh, it'll be a good precursor to this uh, episode. Uh, but he has a new book out called The Extra Tempestrial Model, uh, which I just finished reading and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I recommend everybody go check it out if you're into the whole UAP, UFO stuff, as well as possibly even time travel. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. So go check that out. Uh, before you get we get started here tonight, I'm not going to go through the spiel. Uh, if you want to support the show, there's plenty of ways to do it. We have a Linktree link down below. It's got all the links to our Patreon, which has exclusive episodes, which we will be doing one with Michael Masters tonight. And we've done previous ones with him in the past, so go check that out. Um, and we have a merch store. Um, and we really appreciate uh, nice reviews. If you want to just leave us a review on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google, any one of those. And again, shout out to Ty for winning the t-shirt giveaway. Uh, Maurice sent that out, so that should be headed your way. Thank you for doing that, Maurice. No and, problem. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Welcome back on. How are you doing? Good. How are you fellas doing this evening? Good. Very well. Um, so your first book was Identified Flying Objects. Uh, we <coughs> we've discussed that the last two times we had you on. Um, this one, you kind of added a lot more layers to that as well as some new things. Um what was the inspiration for did you come up with like new takes on your original theory or like what was the inspiration for writing this second book well i mean it started i i guess a long time ago before i even really started writing identified flying objects i thought it might be interesting to do case studies and see sort of what patterns emerge in people's accounts and um I decided to sort of, you know, not really integrate that too much, focus more on these uh, various fields of study, mostly centering on astrobiology, uh, anthropology, physics, and astronomy to kind of make a case for why this time travel model should be given consideration. And it was it was always something I, I kind of wanted to do. And um, I guess basically COVID happened and uh, got bored and decided it was a good time to do it. I mean, everything was shut down. I was teaching entirely online and uh, it just it seemed like a good time to, to sort of start this project. And I, I feel like it was not necessarily a failing of my first book, but just it wasn't a focus as people's experiences. So this was a good chance to really look at some that both support this time travel model and those that, that don't necessarily. And and just suss out what sort of patterns emerge and, and what we might be able to learn from them in the context of this extra tempestrial model, but also 
um, the simulation hypothesis, interdimensional hypothesis, extraterrestrial hypothesis, um, and others, just to kind of see what, you know, you throw a bunch of noodles against the wall and see what sticks, basically. So that was the um, the main idea. And honestly, I mean, I learned so much from the process. I, I had obviously studied the UFO phenomenon in order to write this first book, and I've, I've been interested in it since I was a, a small child. But I hadn't really gone deep into these accounts before. So really just kind of, it's almost like a, a massive content analysis of sorts where just looking at all these different cases and then trying to kind of weave them together and, and figure out what fits, what doesn't, um, and, and just see, you know, if we can learn from the accounts of people that have had arguably the, the closest kind of encounter you can have. Absolutely. Um, and for people that don't know or haven't seen you on our show or other shows, you are a biological anthropologist and a professor at Montana Tech. Um, and you, again, you have written your first book, which is Identified Flying Objects. Um, some some questions or some interesting things I found was obviously I mentioned this you you know this off air just now, but um, the the music you wrote the intro music or your band did, um, which I appreciate that. I know Maurice and I are big on original music and creativity in that aspect as well. Um, and also you read your own Audible book, which I really appreciate too. Not enough authors do that, and it's usually the same like three or four narrators that people get. Um, but yeah, I really appreciated you doing that. I appreciate you appreciating it because it's a, a giant pain in the... Oh, I know. Uh, wait, is this an FCC show? This is a podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> giant, giant pain in Watch the ass. Watch out now! You could, you can, I know, I don't want to get. You, could, you get can sued. swear sparingly in here. All right, good. all right. I'll I'll try to keep it uh, to a we minimum. Used to let, we used to let the explicitives fly, but <laughs> the early episodes are very explicit. Yeah, I might I might have dropped some f bombs in those too, so I apologize <laughs> if I did. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, the first book took me four months to read and edit and master. Um, but, you know, speaking of the music, a, a big reason why I could do that was because we produced a studio album uh, with my band, which had six people in it. So it, just getting all those instruments, all the tracks laid down, bringing everything together. Um, Is that somewhere? And, can people find that on like Spotify or anything or? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called the Red Mountain Band, and um, yeah, it's on Spotify and, and Amazon and, and, awesome. and other places. Um, but yeah, no, it was a fun project, and I'll, I'll warn people ahead of time, there's some pretty weird songs. Um, <laughs> one of them I wrote after taking a sexual deviance class at Ohio State, uh, like an 800-level sexual deviance class where my professor did her PhD on glory holes. Jeez. So you have like these dudes who are you know, doing stuff yeah. in, in these glory holes and these public bathrooms. And then she would bust out with the cops and they'd arrest these people and, and she would interview them. And this is how she collected her data for her dissertation. So uh, I, I wrote a song called glory hole uh, from what I learned from this class. That is probably one of the least weird songs on that album, to be honest. Um, but no, it was fun doing that and adding some music. And I, I think a lot of, uh, audiobooks benefit from that but the first one took me four months and i vowed to do this last book in two and i came i came damn close i, I was in with about a week of that but it consumed my life and it happened to dovetail at the end of the semester um trying to do finals week and wrap up a, a dig we had and um just all kinds of other things that that happen at the end of a semester plus i'm on sabbatical this year so i had to do extra wrapping up of things and we've got some really loud chickens right outside my window who sometimes decide to be very loud at the worst possible time so there were some some delays and things but it, it's still a rewarding uh process and, and 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 others have said the same thing they appreciate the author reading it so uh i'm i'm happy to do it but it is definitely challenging <clears throat> So your, your book kind of starts off, you know, you mentioning, and I believe you mentioned this in your first book too, but you mentioning your dad saw a strange light in the sky. Uh, he had a copy of communion up on his bookshelf. You saw it around the age of eight. It kind of left a mark on you. And from there you were both intrigued and a little, I don't know if terrified is the word, but you know, it's, it's got a creepy vibe to it. Right. 
It does, but I wasn't at all terrified. And thank you for that, by the way. You're the first person in the roughly 200 interviews I've done that's ever articulated that for me. People are usually like, so tell us your origin story, even if they already know it. So I appreciate you summarizing that. But yeah, no, I have that book on my shelf uh, right here, looking out in the same way it was at me uh, when I was eight years old. Um, but no, I, I wasn't scared at all. And I think that's uh, something I share with a lot of people who embrace this model. And I've met many who were abducted, who had, you know, the classic anal probe, the sperm extractions, all these things that are violated. I mean, they felt violated in every sense of the word. But then in in recognizing their humanity and recognizing that, you know, they could just be a more advanced form of us, that it gave them a sense of uh, acceptance that they saw it more as a doctor visit with people, with humans, as opposed to some, you know, foreign entity coming across the stars and abducting them and doing these things that left a horrific impression, PTSD on, on many of them. So, um, no, recognizing the humanity in Strieber's uh, cover, I think, almost allayed some fears that could have crept up uh, had I considered them extraterrestrials. Because I've met a lot of people, too. One of my best friends uh, here in Butte read the book, and he had always been scared of an alien invasion since he was a kid. It's one of those unfounded fears that a lot of us have. And uh was like... Yeah, I mean, you make a good case. I'm kind of on board, and I, I don't see any reason why they would attack us if uh, they are us. So um, yeah. it, it definitely gives people uh, a little bit of, I, I guess, hope for the future, too, that we're not just going to die from climate change or nuclear holocaust or whatever. So it, there's a hopeful message, and especially because despite all the probing and the weird stuff that happens, they do seem to be very empathetic. So it, it gives me hope for the future of humanity in the sense that we, we care uh, more than we, than we do now. Yeah. And you go into uh, discussing, you know, cause your background, biological evolution and this idea through space travel and um, things that aren't necessary through communication anymore and stuff like that. The, you know, how we look at, chimpanzees or primates similar you know to like how we look now now take that a whole nother step forward and that's kind of maybe what we would be looking at um i guess my question would be uh while i was i i actually listened to the audible version i did not read it but um uh when i was listening i, I was because i like to listen sometimes because i come up with my own branch off theories and speculations yeah, yeah. and stuff like that um so, like, the foreshadowing, like, how we look at the gray, um, could that be almost like um, how, interp you know, like, humans used to interpret supernatural beings or gods. Could they have been viewing us now? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, so they would be looking at us now the way we look at the grays uh, from our point of view. Ancient people could have been looking at us as some sort of archetypal future or uh, maybe even scene time travelers or something like that. So I, I was thinking about that while I was reading your book or listening to your book. Um, I don't know what you have to say about that, but I thought that that was a kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I try to, I guess, like bring the roots back because it is about time and it's about us being the more primitive ones and them coming back to study us in the past. And and speaking of chimps and, and what we were just talking about, we're now starting to recognize um, enough of us in them that we have outlawed in most developed countries and, and many brick nations as well. Uh, experiments on chimps, gorillas, hominoids, the higher primates in general. Um, but yeah, I think we can learn a lot about this and it's easier to conceptualize if we picture ourselves as the ones going back. And I, I mentioned this briefly in both books because we we arguably possess the same traits uh, that they have, the, the archetypal grays. If we go back far enough in time, uh, the bigger skulls, the the bald heads, with depending on who goes back and picks people up, bigger eyes, smaller faces, um, all, all of these traits that we associate with these individuals is uh, is something that that we would exhibit 
as time travelers to the past. And maybe we are those, honestly, because when I wrote my first book, I mostly considered it in the context of these greys and that they're coming back from our distant future. But in researching this new book, I realized that so many of these encounters are with people that look exactly like we do now as modern humans. Mm -hmm. So if we're seeing ourselves from maybe even only 50 or 100 years in the future, who are coming back probably for different reasons than the ones that are more like 10 or 15,000 years in the future. Uh, they might have different objectives, a different reason for coming back in time. Uh, but if they are able to go back into the distant past, we, we would be that exact thing. That thought experiment could be a reality where we have many of those traits and would uh, be perceived as, as godlike in many ways because of our technology and our, our characteristics that might, uh, make us different enough that they don't even recognize our humanity. Um, we, we, we have these people that come into contact with people just like us, and they still don't recognize our humanity. For me, it was a, an obvious red flag that they even had eyes, nose, mouth, hands, arms, legs, all the same traits that we have in the same proportions, but um, it, it's still not enough, even with these grays. So, yeah, I think... Um, even, even a lot of, and, and I, I steered away from this in the first book because uh, I didn't, uh, I mean, obviously it was controversial in and of itself and being a, an academic who's writing books about UFOs comes with its own risks. Um, but, but even like religion, a lot of religious ideologies, religious events, I think can be explained in the context of this model. So I, I put more of those into this. I still cut some out that I, I felt like I wanted to be in there, but maybe it's not time yet. So, um, yeah, no, I think there's a lot we can learn by by looking at ourselves now and, and sort of projecting us back into the past as if we had time travel technology today. Yeah. Um, I, I was, wanted to ask him something real fast. Yeah, are, you, are you familiar with the, uh, the Zimbabwe uh, encounter with the children at the school? Our aerial school never heard of it oh okay because i don't want to go too <laughs> dude he's messy oh, he's with these it's, it's a totally damn book totally man. it's a damn book he's totally that, was one okay, of the, okay. uh, that was one of the chapters you didn't share the book with them man no um, i didn't get a chance to look at it but uh, uh that's cool that it's in there because that's that I, i've just been thinking about that and it's like kind of it's a perfect example of what you're saying it's like these these beans came back and from what I'm, what I understand, they told the children to kind of not be so technology and things of that nature. And uh, I don't know. That's that's one of the encounters that really stuck with me. Me and Michael have been kind of looking yeah, into these different ones, and that that that's like my favorite encounter because I think children are very pure and they have no need to make things up. And obviously, um, they went back and the kids' stories never changed. So there's a lot of, dude, there's, there's something you know, there's, to that. There's a documentary out about that just came out. You should watch that. Yeah. It just came out well, like a month ago, I guess. Yeah. Oh, really? Nice. It's, nice. It's done oh. really well. You should check it out. The guy I think it's spent a lot of Aerial, time on yeah. Aerial school, right? Yeah. I haven't watched okay. it yet either, but I, I am aware it just came out. Oh, it's broke my new chair. Oh. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a really fascinating case on many levels and, and it fit well with this because, Basically, every chapter is kind of a theme. Uh, Mike, you may have gotten this out of it, but where each one sort of focuses on some aspect of the phenomenon where it it sort of, I don't know, I guess pulls things together. And the aerial school one was perfect for, for that. Um, take care of the earth, you know, be wary of your impact on the environment, which which comes up a couple of times toward the end of the book in a couple of different chapters. The case study of Jerry as well. Um, I went into it in more detail on that one, which was a John Mack um, uh, patient. And, and really, we owe a lot of the validity of the aerial school and our knowledge of it from John Mack, him going there and using his skills as a psychologist to interview these kids. And, and if you watch these videos, many of which I'm sure are in that doco about it, you can see just how good he is at his job, it, it, getting this information out, keeping the kids calm, uh, getting them to talk about their experiences, but without you know it being frightening or overwhelming. Um, and he, he really did a great job with that and, and all of his, his work. I, I wish he was alive today to see all of the amazing developments that have happened 
over the last five to six years because um, I think it'd be very validating for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it, back to this this idea though of like time travel and evolution and everything. So you mentioned Jacques Vallée a few times earlier in the book. Um, I guess so. Like I've been having this like ongoing speculative hypothesis or whatever. I guess it can't be a theory because it can't be tested, but the idea that um, these mysteries, whether it be UFOs or religious aspects or metaphysical experiences or mystical experiences, are programmed into us as some sort of biological mechanism of evolution. And from like a skeptical standpoint, you could kind of say, well, that's just it right there. Um, on the other side of things, you could look at it from your point of view, which would be a more optimistic in terms of maybe time travel or life after death or something like that. Where do you stand on that? Because I use it as like a, um, I, I, I tamp, or, you know, I, I'm, I don't know how to explain this. I, I'm always running thought experiments and stuff like that, and I have to like balance it out because you don't want to go too woo and you don't want to go too dogmatic materialist either. So I think it's important though. But I think that that's an interesting take um, from the standpoint of, you know, we do have this desire to seek out mysteries and there's always been mystery schools there's always been these initiations and things like that um do you think that that's played into our evolution like do you think that that's important for our evolution this belief in something higher or do you think that that's not as important and we'll probably grow out of it at some point if that makes sense um, yeah, I do actually. And I, I feel like there's sort of a movement that's happening. It's, it's bubbling under the surface where we have, um, <clears throat> obviously still a lot of strict materialists, physicalists that exist in academia, especially, but there is also, um, what, what I feel is an increased awareness in, uh, consciousness, uh, panpsychism, vitalism, all of these different ways of understanding nature, understanding our place within. And I don't think consciousness is unique to us. I mean, it seems to be shared more widely. There's clearly um, a, a greater understanding or a more complex form of it that exists in us because we're able to talk about it. But I, I feel like it's something that other organisms share too. And um, regardless of what you call it, you know, dualism, panpsychism, it's it's something that I think should be considered and is being considered more. You're always going to have these hardcore materialists that aren't open to anything that involves psi or any other of the, the more paranormal, supernatural aspects of, right. of the world around us. But that's a failing of science. I mean, it, and it, it, what it comes down to is, is the standards of evidence. Like, how do we test any of that? And we, and we can't yet. We don't have the technology for that. Does that mean it doesn't exist? No. Uh, we, we've always been limited by our ability to test things and to figure things out. That doesn't mean we should just discount it or not create theories or ways of understanding it that would allow us to test these things once we have the technology. I think um, we'd be doing ourselves a huge disservice if we just threw everything out. You know, But at the same time, we can't go too far. We can't say... Well, there's this consciousness that exists and we're aware of it. And there's there's evidence that the the consciousness survives bodily death. And there's uh, telekinesis and telepathy and, and all these other aspects of Psy that we're we're aware of. And there's evidence for it, but it's not it doesn't conform to the standards of evidence as set forth over you know, the last hundred years or so, which is mostly materialistic in nature. So, um I guess I think it's important to keep an open mind and to be talking about these things with the hopes that eventually our technology catches up with the theory and we can test some of these things and show um, objectively that they are real and there are things that were outside of our frame of reference before we acquired that technology. But in, in many cases, theory uh, precedes understanding so we need that we still need that i mean a lot of what einstein did was theorizing and then slowly over decades his theories were were you know shown to be accurate um with a high level of reliability so no i think we're in a place where we we're 
I, it almost feels like a transitional period. Um, being in academia is, is a pro and a con. I see the dogmatic people. I see those who just, their knee-jerk reaction is to dismiss anything that doesn't conform neatly to um, what fits nicely within the scientific method. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do see a lot of people who are highly accredited researchers pushing that boundary. And I think it's happening more now than it has in the past. And I think they're getting the support of their institutions, still not granting agencies or journals per se, but uh, I and others like me are actually getting support from our colleagues, from our institutions, from um, the higher ups in the administration. And, and it's really great to see. And I think it's just going to continue into the future. At least I'm hopeful it will. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen, I've definitely seen a shift even in the last five years since we've been doing this podcast. That's for sure. Um, I guess to the point where I would diverge from valet, cause you mentioned valet describing them as possibly intertemporal beings. Um, I guess where I would diverge in what I was saying is, um, I entertain the idea that it could just simply be mechanistic as a part of evolution as opposed to these things actually being there, meaning we're creating, we're subconsciously creating these things to keep us going, not knowing that that's what's keeping us going. Uh, and I got, I know that sounds bleak. That's not necessarily what I wholly believe, but I definitely speculate on that and temper my, yeah, my, I, uh, I was at a conference in Houston, um, where Jacques Vallée gave a talk, uh, I don't know. I guess it was March. I think that sounds right. Um, and, and somebody was talking to me. I don't remember who it was, but Jacques Vallée came up. I don't know if he just gave his talk or what, but um, he was like, he was saying basically the same thing that, yeah, Vallée's entertained this intertemporal, interdimensional. And he's like, but what didn't Jacques Vallée entertain? You know, speaking of throwing things against the wall to see what sticks, that, that's kind of always been his thing. Right. It's just let's let's get everything out there and assess what makes the most sense and what doesn't. And he was he was great at that. You know, he he tended toward the mystical side early on. He uh, he he would talk about the fairies and the leprechauns and the impact that the 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 phenomenon has through time and the way it becomes. Um, sort of archived in the cultural record of these people, which which I argue in my most recent book is an indication of time travel. If you have the same phenomenon going back ages, it's going to be recognized and, and articulated differently and documented differently by people at various stages of development along the process to becoming them. And we're one of those. We're at a, a more enlightened stage where we can talk about metals and electromagnetism and and these things that people a thousand years ago couldn't or five thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago they could make a cave painting and that's about the best they could do um so so we're in a unique position where we can maybe even see just how close we are to becoming them in the near future rather than the distant future but no i mean i think we owe valet a, a huge debt uh, uh gratitude for for all of the ways he introduced people to this field um the the theories that he's put out that you know it, nobody had any way of conceptualizing these things throughout much of his career we still don't but he was willing to talk about it the invisible college jalen hynek all of these other scientists who were aware that this is a real phenomenon who saw it worthy of their time to get together and, and try to discuss it and figure it out. And we're, we're sitting on a stair step uh, on the foundation that they laid, you know, like they, they provided the, the, the concrete for us to continue to build those stairs. So um, yeah, I, I don't know if he really adheres to any one uh, idea. Maybe he does personally, but in his writing, at least it seems that mm -hmm. he just kind of wants to, understand it the best he can with whatever model uh, might make the most sense. Sure. No, absolutely. I think we're all trying to do that. Obviously he's, yeah, he's ahead of the game. Um, you mentioned Jim Penniston, uh, you know, during the, the Rendlesham forest incident, some instance of like loss of time, uh, that kind of a thing, time dilation. You mentioned George Hoover, uh, who said that the Roswell, uh, aliens were time traveling humans, 
Um, and you, you go through and you show like all these quotes of all these different people um, mentioning, you know, kind of what this theory is. And, I, and I, I will say this. I appreciate you going through, too, and like looking at all the historical accounts of your own hypothesis, too, because I don't think enough people do that. They'll write a book and they won't either give it's not even like credit, but it's just like talking about where the idea comes from. It helps people get a better idea of where you're going with it too. If that makes sense. Yeah. And then if they want to go and look at anybody else's interpretation, they are able to do that provided references for all of those. Right. So I really appreciate that. But like, what do you, what stood out the most out of all those like quotes and people talking about it? Was there one that was like, wow, you know, I really respect this person's opinion and um, it really backs up my hypothesis. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, and what I was trying to do in that section of chapter one, in addition to giving shout outs to all the people that deserve it for trying to get this idea out in one form or another, was to show just how many people have had this idea around the same time, uh, for various reasons, you know, I've, I've met and, and worked with and collaborated with, or just even heard of so many people and and especially it seems like it's increased too. Like there's been kind of an acceleration where more people have sort of come to this conclusion independently. And, and obviously as someone who's been writing about this and talking about it for some time, more of them reach out to me. So I have some bias in that because uh, of what I'm doing. And uh, so even I I mentioned, I I didn't even know anything about your work or this idea. And I mentioned it the first time we had you on, because I found your book. I'm like, this is crazy. You know? Uh, So I think that there's, do you think it's something like a collective unconscious aspect of it? Some sort of, I kind of do. Yeah. I kind of do think that. Um, And, and, and it's like that with a lot of things throughout history and prehistory is that people sort of start to understand, they start to have, the pieces they need in place to begin to understand things. And then they understand them together. There's like this collective subconscious unconscious. And, and it seems like, you know, I'm hearing it mentioned all the time by uh, like this, this Congressman Gallagher, I think is his name. There's this uh, weather person on the today show mentions it every chance she can and pisses off Al Roker all the time with it. Um, and, and it's like, you know, you're hearing people talk about it who, who have reach, you know, I, I don't know if it's because of my work or just that people are talking about this more, it makes sense. And, and we're all starting to recognize that it makes a lot of sense. Um, whatever it is, there, there seems to be some traction, you know, and, and, and like actually the very last Ancient Aliens episode they did uh, was entirely about this theory, about this time travel theory. It's called Time Benders. And I'm sure they'll start rerunning it a lot once the show comes back on this month or next month. I don't know when it comes back on. But yeah. but it was like all the prehistoric stuff, historic stuff. Jim Penniston was on right before me. And then I closed out the show um, with with the research and that I've done for my first book is my second one wasn't out yet. Um, even Van Daniken, Von Daniken was like, yeah, I've always thought this could be a possibility, you know? So it's, it's something that a lot of people have thought about. And I think we're starting to, to hear people's ways of thinking about it more ways of conceptualizing this idea. Um, it, it's funny to hear like, that Gallagher t- guy talk about it. Cause he, 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 he's mostly using, like the Terminator and Back to the Future and all of these horrible sources for yeah. this idea. Like there's so many plot holes and just paradoxes in these movies, but, yeah. but who cares? You know, he's still talking about this and, and formulating ideas and sharing these ideas with people. So it, it's good to see. Um, but no, I think, I think it should be considered. And I think it's good that it is being considered. And, and to answer your question, I, yeah, I think Penniston was always the one, for me that that stood out the most um and and oddly i had never even heard of him until i started talking about this this work i was doing before my book published so fortunately i did hear about him could do some basic research get a little section in there and and uh him and i have been in contact over the last couple years or so and he's yeah he's team time travel obviously and um he's a, he's a good person to have on the team for sure 
Nice. That's awesome. Um, yeah, what do you think? Though? I, I, I just wanted your take on that because, like, the ancient alien thing is very polarizing, especially for online academics because they most online academics hate it. Um, do you think, I mean, because you have, you know, your background is biological anthropology, so you understand, like, evolution and that humans built all the megalithic structures, but there's people that watch that show that don't understand that and attribute it <coughs> to specifically aliens coming here and things like that. But then occasionally they'll have an episode about panspermia that's pretty good or time travel that's pretty good. Or, like, like do you have, like, an opinion yeah. on that? Or I do. I actually wrote a... Um a piece for the scientific coalition of UAP studies earlier this year, specifically about ancient aliens and kind of what they do, how they do it, the legacy, what they contribute, what they take away. And there's a lot they take away. There's no doubt about that. And especially because, I mean, it's, it's almost like a religion unto itself. In fact, uh, that, that conference at Rice University, I mentioned earlier, David Metcalf, uh, a, a well-known, or at least if you haven't heard of him, you should check out his work, uh, researcher, uh, journalist. He, he was talking about, he lives in rural Georgia, and he gave an anecdote where he was talking about how people will be at the gas station, they're talking about church, but then also ancient aliens in the same context. Like they've wrapped together their worldview, their religious worldview, with this sort of ancient aliens model uh, whatever that means, because ancient aliens just throws things at the wall too. They well, they god the gaps. I guess that's where I was going with this: is they yeah. alien the gaps instead of godding the gaps. So I wrote, I wrote this piece for the SEU's um, quarterly publication, and it was, you know, demonstrating, I guess, the importance of the show in the context of breaking this subject open more but we do owe them a lot like people probably wouldn't be talking about that's how i found out about gobekli tepe now i know yeah, I all the, say that now i know all the yeah. official anthropological and uh, archaeological discoveries there and everything but what led me to being interested in that was that you know andrew collins walking through uh gobekli tepe in one of the early episodes i'm like i didn't even learn about this in school so no and and you wouldn't you know, you also wouldn't learn that aliens did everything either because it's bullshit and they didn't. Right. Um, but it's at the same time, it's still important that they 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 reach seven million people every time a new episode comes out. You know, so obviously, as someone who's trying to reach seven million people with this idea about time travel and other things that I think should be discussed. And and I always thought, you know, maybe I was a little naive, but I thought maybe because I'd shot a few episodes for them going back you know three or four years and it was always in the context of hey come down talk about this time travel idea i'm like sweet and i was being manipulated to some extent because they wanted me to talk about anthropological things but then that they were cherry pick things that would make for the episode or whatever right right and every single time guess what they cut out everything I said about time travel and right. solution. So I was kind of weary to work with them again, but then, you know, these producers reached out and said, we're doing a whole episode about time travel. I'm like, all right, well, it's not likely they'll cut me out if the entire episode is about time travel. And, right. and the things I contributed were, were very esoteric to anthropology, uh, time, time travel, the physics of that. So I did contribute to those episodes. They never, misused anything I said or put it in some context that was like twisting my words or anything like that. I, I was just kind of, you know, I guess, butt hurt by the fact that they cut out the thing they told me I was coming down there for. Regardless, right. this last right. time they did a good job. Like, I feel like this was a good episode and, and there seems to be a shift uh, in the mentality, the direction. They're more open to different ideas. It doesn't seem like it's so much, everything's extraterrestrials everything was built by extraterrestrials right. which i hate an anthropologist yeah. archaeologist we hate that like yeah. these people are perfectly capable of doing this and, and as you and know there, from my there are book, real mysteries still out there that have to do with human you know innovation and yeah, you know technology totally. and stuff that that you could point to actually i've had i can't tell you how many emails and, and people i've talked to and stuff where like if ancient aliens didn't just you know devolve into it was aliens you know, they had a show just about megalithic structures that was like that, but 
about the actual megalithic structure and not about aliens, so many more people would be like totally in on it. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a happy medium there and maybe it'll evolve into something more like that. I don't know. I think it already has. Yeah. I mean, they're even using two cameras now. They only okay. used one camera for the last 10 years. Gotcha. And the, the cameraman, <laughs> Jamie, for that show. Quality. Yeah. yeah, he's like, they let me use two cameras. Now look at this. I'm like, whoa, so innovative, you know, but they're they're all great. Uh, the, all the producers I've ever worked with, the camera crew, the the sound woman, they're all fantastic people. And I, I wish them well, but there is a legacy to that show that, yeah, has divided. Yeah, there's quite a few the, vocal. The scientific uh, community. Yeah, there's quite a few uh archaeologists on twitter that are always coming hard at it oh yeah uh, and and they're right you know they're they're right they're right. absolutely right um the the show th- th- isn't good in the sense of like accurately portraying what we know about skeletal biology archaeological sites um human evolution but but at the those same people time, are also good, the people that don't want aliens. those people don't want to have open conversation like those people should be hosting no. spaces on twitter and having conversations with real people i think that's the biggest problem is like science communication like the people that think they're so right and they're up in their ivory towers or whatever that's a problem because you're not relating to normal everyday people so how are they supposed to know about the stuff exactly. that you're covering because you're not yeah. conveying it and the when i do check out usually like you're obviously super cool we've had you on quite a few times but there's a lot of people that i've come across I'm like I'll, let me check out their youtube channel or whatever it's the driest most boring thing like you have to make this enjoyable for somebody to watch or they're never going to learn about this so and you know uh that's i guess what i was trying to say when i I mentioned that i was naive in doing this not that i thought i would change ancient aliens or anything but i thought i could add a voice that was representative of our community of archaeologists and anthropologists where we get a say we get to talk with the people not at them you know and that's always been my thing like it's so easy to say the UFO community or UFOs, the whole subject, forget about it. What's the point in talking to these people? They're all crazy. They're all conspiracy theorists. You know, as well as I do, that's not true. Right. At all. There's a lot of very intelligent people who are also very skeptical and who want the facts and who want to know reality. But it's easy to lump all of us in with, you know, the the conspiracy theorists and whatnot. So, right. My, my, my main objective has always been to talk with people not at them. Because if you talk at people, you're not connecting. You're, you're not sharing ideas. You're not telling them why Gobekli Tepe wasn't built by aliens right. 300,000 years ago. You know, the evidence doesn't support this, but I can tell you why the evidence doesn't support that right. rather than just screaming from an ivory tower that nobody's going to listen to. So like, I understand their frustration, but they're going about it the wrong way. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree, and I, I pay attention. I don't always jump into the drama, but I, I like following it to see what's going on. It's a good time. Uh, <laughs> it is entertaining. To, <laughs> back, back to your – the Atlantis one's fun, too, when people forget Yeah, about oh, that. God. Uh, the, so back to your book, though. So one thing I really liked and I found interesting was you laid out all the science fiction that you looked to, too. I think you mentioned 1992, somebody named Davenport wrote visitors from or visitors what was it called visitors from time or something like that yeah mark davenport i got that book uh visitors from time yeah he did Um, a great job it was a really good book and i wasn't aware of this until one of my first trolls um was like oh you're just mm -hmm. a mark davenport hack Uh (laughs) and i was like who's who's that (laughs) you know somebody else was talking about this before me sweet right so, so I went and checked out his book a couple years ago, and he he wasn't a scientist. Uh, he was I forget what his profession was, but at the end, he's like um, lays out a beautiful case for why this theory makes sense. But then um, says at the end, like this is something a scientist should take and run with. And, and it was so cool reading that as a scientist who you know ran with it, not because of his book, but because you know, of my own experiences and my own thought processes, but it, it was kind of fun to see like every, and I think it was published in 1992. So he, he put this out there a while ago. Um, and it, it is a really good book. He, he takes sort of a different approach than I did, but that that's good. You know, these, they complement each other and, and all of these different takes do. And that's another reason I wanted to, to put that all out in chapter one. In fact, one, Jesus Christ, that I didn't, 
I wasn't aware of because I read the book last week. Uh, Joe McMonagle, one of the first remote viewers in the Stargate mm -hmm. program, one of the best remote viewers of all time, uh, won all kinds of medals, has been vetted many, many times over. Uh, he, he wrote on page 174 of his book that by the mid-century of the 21st century, this century we're in, it will be commonly understood that UFOs are time machines. Mm. And I was like, damn, that would have looked nice in chapter <laughs> one when I was talking about all these other people that had said this. And of course, I read it like literally the week after the book came out. So that's not in there, but that's another great book people should check out. Joe, Joseph McMonagle, it's called The Ultimate Time Machine. Uh, many of your listeners have probably already yeah. read it, but... Yeah, he, he remote viewed the future, the near future and the year 3000. And it's uh, it's pretty cool what he found. Nice. No, I got to check that out. I've uh, I've always been interested in the SRI and remote viewing in the early days of that. And um, yeah, I mean, those people probably went through similar stuff. I mean, you look at like Russell Targ, he was like one of the more respected laser scientists. And then he gets into the whole, you know uh ufo remote viewing all that sort of stuff so um but yeah you i just know, i really like that quick. aspect of it the, the sci-fi stuff so yeah and and that's what i was gonna say actually is uh stranger things has done a lot for my ability to talk to people about remote viewing because he joe, joe mcmonagle yeah. this guy is is 001 he he's the i forget the character's name but if you've seen stranger things he's Zero, zero, 001, he was the first um, remote viewer. And obviously they took the Stargate program and just creative liberties out the ass with the, right, the storyline. Right. And it's great. It's a fantastic show. Um, but that that he was that guy. He was the remote viewer. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, I always like, I don't, <laughs> here's the weird, I read very little fiction, but if I do, it's usually science fiction, you know, Asimov or... Uh, uh, I don't even know, Philip K. Dick, stuff like that. I just, I'm a more nonfiction guy. Um, By the so way, I, yeah. sorry to keep interrupting you. No, go ahead. Uh, Philip K. Dick was a contactee. He was visited. Oh, really? By, yeah. Uh, if you listen to Riz, Rizvon Verk's book, um, The Simulation Hypothesis, he, he references Dick a lot in that and subtly just very briefly mentions that he had a contact experience and i'm pretty sure that a lot of his storylines came from that there's no mm. question in my mind well that explains how many how he could write so many of them i mean that guy mm -hmm. that, that has... and how many were like realistic about the right. future True. you know yeah. crazy if he yeah. was with people that saw the future came from the future and gave him some telepathic information not that that necessarily is the case but I, I wasn't aware of that until I, I, I read uh, uh, the the simulation hypothesis. Yeah, no, that's interesting. that's interesting. And actually, I mean, I like that old adage too. It's like science fiction one day becomes science fact. I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and if yeah. nothing else, it gives us the inspiration to explore those ideas and maybe have something similar come out of it for sure. Yeah, um, definitely. I think somebody was asking, did, did you do you know if Joseph McMonagall ever? remote viewed an actual alien and how would he how do you think he knew about the, the time travel correlation no that's a good question um what's funny is that how i learned of him was because of ed may who ran the cia program or the stargate program rather um he was at that race university conference too, opening the archives of the impossible and i was like this dude sounds interesting. And it kind of rang a bell because I think I had read the abstract of his book before I even went there. Um, came back, got it, finally just read it like a week ago because this last month has been insane. And uh, he doesn't go into detail about what he saw or whether he had any contact. But, but Ed May was asked that question specifically about whether they ever remote viewed um, any sort of UFO base, any sort of future extraterrestrials, anything involving UFOs. And he said they weren't allowed to do that while working for us, but he knows some of them did. Hmm. And I think he was talking 
Uh, sure others too but definitely probably like ingo swan some other yeah yeah yeah, absolutely and and it's not in his book um he does he says by the mid-century 21st century we will know or it will be commonly accepted that they are time machines Mm. and they are from our future specifically he says that um but no he doesn't go into detail and 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 if you're remote viewing 3000 year 3000 but we've already established in the next 25 years that they're us from the future Right. Well, what's the point? Like right. they're they're just integrated into our society at that point. So uh, maybe that's why it wasn't mentioned. Is it was just an aspect of of that reality? I don't know. That's a good question. Interesting. Um, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I didn't want to get too much into like some of the more meat of the book. I, I know I keep referring to the first few chapters, but I, I feel like I ruin people's books sometimes when I interview them if people haven't read them. Um, what this would one, you... I don't know if you could do spoilers in this one. Though. I know, but there there was some stuff from your first you book. Just say spoilers there. ahead, man. Spoilers ahead. But I guess what I yeah. would ask is, what do you think was the <laughs> single most important um, discovery for this book that you didn't know about or um, have together for the first book? Like, was there one thing that you added to this book where you felt like, man, this is this is a great piece of information? Yeah, there is actually. I appreciate that question. Um, and it actually is because of a an individual who emailed me who claimed to have worked in the intelligence community his entire life and retired. And after my first book came out, he described how they're able to mitigate the G-forces. And it's something that I've always obviously been curious about. Most of us are. It's something Mick West always focuses on. Like, ah, they can't do this. It's the G-forces would kill anything. Um, but he he wrote me this email, and I didn't describe this in the book. I, I think it's, um, I don't know. I, I didn't feel like, well, A, I can't confirm who this person was. B, they probably wouldn't want me to anyway but what they said made me think hmm that's a damn good point and how did i not think of that uh and but what's funny is the first time i read this email i was like hey thanks for reaching out you know that's interesting kind of reiterated what they said clearly poorly because they wrote me back (laughs) the next day and said no i think i don't think you get what i'm saying and then that's when i was like oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that explains so much of this. And it's been starting to come out in other uh, avenues, too. I mentioned Hal Putoff and his talk that he gave at the SU conference um, with uh, even Tom DeLong's been talking about it. Jim Simovan has been talking about it, like this aspect of how they pull that off that was stated to me just after my first book. And of course I was like, damn, I wish, you know, he would have said that two months ago because that would have been a good thing to integrate. But it, that, that is a, a big focus. And I guess maybe I'm, I'm being coy somewhat because that, that would be a spoiler and maybe we're not supposed to give spoilers, but it, it was something that I really, really wanted to get in this book. And, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized that people are already doing this, talking about it, how put off spin research in this for like 15 years, you know, right. Uh, he's, he's got his, his thumb in every dike. It's insane. Um, but he, I, I think there's some legitimacy to what this guy told me. I think he was a legit intelligence agent who knew a lot of things and I would have loved to have sit down and have a conversation with him. But, um, no, that 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 was one thing that I was really excited to put in and talk about, and I bring it up in two different chapters. Mm-hmm. But it plays into everything else too, like the transmedium aspect of it, uh, the time dilation, the sphere of influence, as Penniston called it. There, there's so much that can be explained by this one aspect of of these machines. Do you ever like doubt stuff? Because, like, I mean. I'm maybe we're different, but I sit there like philosophically, I I switch day to day sometimes or even week to week or month to month where it's like, sometimes I'll believe in a lot of stuff. And I guess belief's not a great word. I'll, um, I'll trend towards thinking that things are pot, more things are possible than they really are. Then there's times where I'm like, this isn't even possible. Um, do you, do you have that same, 
um, that same back and forth usually, or no? Do you are you pretty set in your your hypothesis and the way you think about this? No, I'm I'm human, uh, and I'm a highly skeptical human, uh, especially of myself. I'm the most skeptical person I know. I'm I'm my own best troll, I guess we could say. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and and really, honestly, throughout my childhood, throughout college, that's really when I I decided I wanted to investigate this more as as an undergraduate. And then there's that voice in the back of your head that's saying, uh, am I chunking? Like, I'm freezing on my side, but I don't know. Uh, a little I'm bit here and there. It's not bad. Bit. Yeah, my not internet's bad. crap. I live in the mountains. We have satellite internet. It's absolutely horrible. It's okay. I apologize for that. Um, But no, like, <laughs> this goes back 20 years, you know, 25, 30 years. I don't even know how old I am anymore. But like I'm switching my major to this thing that will help me investigate this thing that may or may not even be real. Like there's a lot of self doubt in that, you know, yeah. like well, what if it's not that then right. what do I do? I mean, it's still anthropology is a fun career, so I'm glad I did it regardless. But, um, and then, yeah, obviously any, I, I think it's good though. I think, to have that mentality, especially throughout that process early on in your education and especially grad school, because I couldn't talk to anybody about this. Uh, there were probably a few people I could have, but I didn't. I didn't say a single word to anybody I went to graduate school with about this because it was so taboo. I'd, I'd get the boot. They'd find a reason to not let me be there anymore and get the degree I wanted and to do the things I wanted to do. Um, but I absolutely had self-doubt throughout the entire process. I also suffer from anxiety, depression, that tends to give people even more self-doubt, more skepticism, more self-trolling, if you will. So yeah. it's always been there, but what, what's great about it is that the more I studied, the more I researched, and not just in the context of this, it's not like it dominated every second, every article I read, you know, it, it's in the back of my mind. Hmm. But I I definitely was ready at any point to say, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't check out. Here's this piece of evidence or this this line of evidence that that doesn't um, add to this model. In fact, it detracts. If I research that more, I'll find out that I wasted my entire undergraduate and graduate career. But it was the opposite. The more I learned even without thinking of this, even without it being in the forefront of my mind, the more it made sense. It's each little detail, each hominin I learned about, each time period I learned about and our biocultural evolution seemed to sort of encapsulate this model and reinforce it in so many different ways. So, no, it's still like that today. Um, <laughs> more recent, more personal note, I guess, like a month ago when I was getting ready to publish the book. I was so excited. You know, I couldn't wait to talk to people about it. I was giddy. You know, I, I told my wife last night, I had this sort of childish excitement for this thing. Like Christmas was coming and I got COVID absolutely destroyed. Awesome. I'm, I'm still dealing with it. <laughs> like I've got this sinus infection. I got these migraines. I got bronchitis a month later. Uh, we had a death in the family. Like this last month. Was oh, I'm sorry to hear. Yeah, you know, and, and it's like all that excitement just faded, you know, but at the same time that that's an important part of the process. Like you need to, to check and balance and, and focus on the important things and not, you know, just get too deep into anything. And, and I think it's like that kids learn that, you know, and I, I like to use that, that expression, this like child, childlike euphoria, because it was unfounded. It, it was irrational. It was too, too excited about something. And those always come crashing down. And it, it most definitely did. But uh, it, it is exciting to talk about this. And I'm, I'm happy to be able to do it again. It's, it's still weird. I, I'm still not, I don't know if you went back and looked at past interviews. 
it was probably a somewhat different version of me, but um, it is, it is, it's nice to be back and nice to be talking about it, but it's definitely not that excitement that I had a month ago. No, I mean, it's great to have you back on and I really enjoyed your book. Um, and I look forward to, you know, if people don't know, you're actually going to be in our documentary too, which is in the works. It'll be out later this year, uh, which we appreciate your contributions to that. Um, great contribution. Yeah. Um, so well, but, thank you uh, for that. It's, it's always hard to self-direct, you know, I'm used to people being like smile more or, you know, <laughs> say, say no, you did a good job, man. Something more job. important, but G- given I, the state I, of the world, you know, it's just, I think we did the best that we could do with what we were trying to do. Um, yeah, no, I liked like, your model for it, especially as it was deep, deep into COVID back then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it made sense. Uh, and, and the idea is great and I'm, I'm excited to see it. Um, I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be fantastic. Well, all the pressures on Maurice now I've done what I can do. <laughs> I'm just yeah. joking. No, Maurice is great. Uh, I'm excited to see uh, um, what comes out of it. And I know we've we've added actually like five or six other people too yeah. since we did the trailer. And we might oh, gonna cool. we're probably gonna have to change the name now too because I don't know if you saw everything online with Twitter with that company Saucer Co, which trademarked the term UAP for anything that's on merchandise. Oh, I didn't yeah. know they did that. Yeah. Uh, and that was like a big firestorm. So we might just change the name. Because like, what if we want to create a t-shirt for the documentary? You know, they the guy in yeah. this, we did a Twitter space and the guy said he wasn't going to come after people like that. But I don't want to take any chances. No, I don't think so. you would actually know him personally. David, I believe, is his name. Uh, I've met him and his family. They're all awesome people. And, and you know, it's hard to, to really gauge a person or their intents or anything, especially future intents. But I do get the sense that they're in it for the same reasons we are. They just want they they want UFOs to be out there. I, but I, mean, I, I own. But that's like saying I trademarked UFO and you can't put it on a shirt because I trademarked it. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely important to cover your bases. But just just from my personal experience with him and his family and their company, um, yeah, no, I I. I think they're all great people as long as them. Right on. Well, I, I don't know them. I just, we all jumped in a space the night that that dropped. And uh, yeah, I know a lot of people because a lot of people had their art taken down that had UAP on like artwork and stuff like that, that had no idea that this was coming. So um, while I, I, I'm not doubting what you're saying, that it's great family or whatever, um, I think that there is some sort of... Uh, <laughs> you know, dirty business underbelly to this whole thing too. Um, I'm surprised so. you can even trademark. That's UAP. That's, everybody's that's in shock, plan. man. Everybody was in shock. So yeah, there, I, I imagine there will be an appeal. Cause that's, if that's the term that the government's using, they, that's not trademarkable. Well, that's what but, people are saying. There's precedent sense. that goes all the way back to like 1947 or something like that. So yeah, no, that I mean, there you can challenge those things. I imagine. Well, we'll see. I, again, I, I don't have anything ill will toward. I just thought that that was kind of like a. I mean, who would let that? What kind of judge? Like I said, that's like trademarking UFO. Well, I think a lot of that's automated. Honestly, like I've trademarked some things and copywritten some things, and right. a lot of it's. Uh, it feels like you're talking to computers, and, yeah. and maybe something just slipped Probably through the cracks is. there. Yeah. Again, I'm not out to get anybody, but you start affecting things that I'm doing, and I have completely good intentions with no, you know, I'm not a business. I'm not out there trying to kill it in the merch game or anything like that. So Yeah. Well, in the um, meantime, I mean, that you can brainstorm some other titles. No, we will. I'm, I'm safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, so let's wrap it up here, though, because I do want to do a Patreon segment with you. Um, is there anything else you want to get out there before we wrap it up here? Um, no, I don't know. I mean, it, we just kind of talked. I like talking about <laughs> anything and everything. I mean, you know, every time I go into these, if if somebody sends me questions ahead of time, I don't even look at them. I don't. I don't. I just like talking. That's to a good fresh way. To you know, we don't send questions. We come from the school of improv, my good yes. sir. So. Yes, yes, and yes, <laughs> and um. But yeah, so everybody go check out his book. I have the link down below at the bottom for the Amazon link. He's got a Kindle. He's got the Audible. Um, so go check it out. Uh, totally worth it. I really enjoyed it. Um, 
It was oh, one thing. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, one thing. I speaking of copyrights and and stuff. I I made a new because I had the IFO T-shirts before with like the the chimp, the human, the alien. Dude, it's thing. been copyrighted by Saucer Co. Bro, I don't know. Probably, you know, they can have it. Whatever. <laughs> um, you owe him thousands. Great people. <laughs> great people. They can have it. Um, but no, I realized like that's very specific to my first book. So I did a new new design. It was right before I left on this this cross country trip. So I haven't gotten anything up on Etsy yet. But it's um, it's like a, a, a new sort of more general these are time travelers type of t-shirt and 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 koozie and stuff just you know it's a good way to get things out there get things in front of people like to get them to thinking about this time travel model so within the next few days i'll probably have some of those up on etsy if anybody wants to check them out awesome and there's a link from my website to get there too Beautiful. Sounds good. I'll, I'll add the link down below for your website. I didn't add it, but I will add it down below. But again, the, the link for the book is is there already. Um, and yeah, if you're interested, we're about to do a Patreon segment with uh, Dr. Michael Masters. We've done one in the past. Uh, actually, we called it the Dr. Michael Masters Show. If you're interested in him as a, <laughs> yeah, uh, a host, great one. check it out. Yeah, uh, it, was but, it was a flip. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a flipperoo. Uh, but yeah, the, the link is uh, in our link tree. So just hit that. We've got our Patreon, our merch, our all Spotify. Again, if you're not watching us and you listen to us on Spotify, you can watch us on Spotify. We do have the video on there as well. And, yeah, we appreciate uh, everybody's contributions and nice messages. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to our future project with uh, um, Dr. Mike over here. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really excited about this topic in general and where everything's going. So. Uh, but listen, we love everybody. Everybody stay safe out there and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace.